There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit MarketHouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, your guide to the fundamentals of better deer hunting. And now, your host, Tony Peterson. Hey everyone, welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. This episode is all about having some fun with your muzzleloader. Sometimes we take things a little too seriously when it comes to deer. And that can suck the joy right out of the hunt. This week's show is all about going into the woods with your muzzleloader and trying out some, you know, I guess, I don't even know if you'd call them unconventional tactics. Maybe they're not as popular as they used to be, but they are a hell of a lot of fun, often more fun than the kind of guerrilla warfare strategy that we we preach all the time where you can't make a mistake and you, you know, give these deer so much credit. So some of the things I plan to go through in this very episode you know, they're not relevant just to you know somebody carrying a smoke bowl in the woods, right? Like you could use these for rifle hunting, you could use some of these for bow hunting. Whatever you carry into the woods, the next couple weeks, the next maybe month before the season ends, we've got you covered. My home state of Minnesota's muzzleloader season lasts just a shade over two weeks. And it was on the very last day of that season, probably in like 2004 or so, that I had had enough of sitting in my bow stands freezing my ass off. We had several inches of fresh snow, and the conditions were just perfect for sneaking around. I had super low standards, and I had one afternoon to get it done. So I set out toward a patch of timber that starts high and ends low along a meandering trout stream. On that farm, at that time, that was one of the few spots with good patches of real cover, which, wildly enough, were created by a tornado. This is a total aside here, but that experience of having an old-growth, deciduous forest get partially raised by a summertime twister changed the way that whole property hunted for the better. It went from being pretty bad all over to having one pocket of clear-cut level thick stuff. And you can imagine, that's where most of the bucks hold up. 
It was one of my first lessons on microclimates and just how much can change in the deer woods from year to year, from things that are way, way outside a man's influence. It also really made me appreciate having good bedding cover where I can hunt. Anyway, that afternoon, I set out for that patch of timber that was thicker than the surrounding areas because it always has deer in it. I started to still hunt my way through the woods, looking for deer, looking for fresh tracks, and kind of just enjoying a nice early winter time in the woods. I guess I must have zoned out a bit because after covering a couple hundred yards, I caught movement up the trail. It was a fox squirrel's tail waving slowly back and forth. You know how they do that when they're thinking about getting ready to really bark and blow up, but they're just kind of kind of kicking it around in their little squirrel head. What that squirrel was focused on was a pair of does. They were maybe 50 yards away from me down the trail. I quickly moved to a nearby tree, used it as a rest, and I don't really know what happened other than I must have rushed the shot, but I missed badly. It wasn't my finest moment. It was one of those times in the outdoors where you believe you're about to go from zero to hero, only to go from zero to zero, or less than zero, maybe. I don't know. I'm not really good at math. Anyway, they took off, and I checked the time. I had an hour left of daylight. I resigned myself to look for another deer. I also thought that I'd walk along their tracks because they had cut back down into a valley that would keep them on the property I could hunt. I'd never pulled that northeast trick of walking down a deer in the fresh snow, and I really didn't expect to then. But those tracks circled around a spot I knew well, and I could see they dropped straight down into the valley in a way that might give me a shot if they were still there. This was because those tracks were etched into the fresh powder that showed they perfectly cut around a limestone outcropping that not only randomly houses a coyote den underneath it most years, but provides one hell of a vantage point from on top of it. I thought I might just be able to crawl up on it and glass those does up. Once I peeked over the edge, I saw there was no need for glassing. Both of them were bedded like 35 yards below me. It was a gift of an opportunity, to be honest. And I also happened to be one of the biggest does I've ever shot in a lifetime of shooting a lot of does. That moment was one of those times during hunting where a mistake led to a new direction, which led to an aha moment. While I had killed a few deer still hunting with my bow up to that point, I always kind of wrote it off as a way to satisfy my wanderlust and my desire to be in the woods while walking around. I didn't really think of it as much of a good strategy for killing deer. But that's the thing about whitetail hunting. It's what we think we know that we don't that teaches us the most. Now, while I wouldn't advocate this type of strategy without the right conditions, I would say that you can have some fun with it if Mother Nature serves up the right weather. I'd also say that you might be able to pull this off while rifle hunting in the general season, but it's a different thing when there might be several hundred thousand people in the woods with you. That's why I like it so much for muzzleloader hunting because that's usually a low participation season and the odds of running into other hunters and screwing up their hunts are pretty low. The sneak around strategy is a phenomenal way to learn ground while you're actively hunting. And it kind of mirrors what a lot of absolute killers do on public land with their archery gear. You know, whether you're chatting with Andy May or Zach Farenbaugh or somebody else who just gets it done wherever they go, the idea of moving, moving, moving until the deer show you to stop is undeniable even if it makes a lot of us kind of uncomfortable because we're unfamiliar with it. So while following fresh tracks in the snow isn't exactly the same thing, some of the same benefits apply. Plus, as I've mentioned, it sure is fun if you've got enough room to roam. And you don't need snow to do this either. In 2013, a good buddy and I drove down to Nebraska in the middle of December to try to see if we could find a whitetail or a mule deer with our muzzle loaders. 
Our destination was an enormous chunk of public land, thinking we would probably be able to walk down a buck since we had three days. Our hunt took place in the sand hills, and what I learned after about six hours of that trip was that my e-scouting for it really sucked. I also learned that the rifle season had really put the deer down. We had split up for most of the day, going into areas we thought were the most likely to hold a buck. My buddy had actually found a couple and had missed. I hadn't seen a deer in six hours of hiking, but I did find plenty of spots where other hunters had set up recently. I also realized that I was somewhat checked out and not hunting the way I should be. We met up for an early afternoon lunch of pocket rocket soup on the tailgate of his truck, after which we decided to go in where he had had his encounter. It was more of the same, which is frustrating when you can glass a ridiculous amount of good-looking cover and not turn up a deer. But that happens in the real world. It happens a lot right after gun season. We had maybe half an hour left when we had a little conversation at the bottom of a draw about heading back to the truck. It was a long day and we were smoked. But I looked at my Onyx and I saw that there were two ridges left in front of us that we hadn't looked at yet. So we had a choice. We could hunt them at the best time of the day or we could hunt through stuff we'd already seen. So we made the obvious choice. And as soon as I stuck my head up over the first ridge, I saw a buck standing on the next one, plain as day. It was as if he was just like placed there in the wide open waiting for us. That two-year-old whitetail waited just a couple seconds too long trying to figure out what we were. And I'll tell you what, there was a lot of celebrating going on when he tipped over in the yellow December grass. On that hunt, it felt like we had about 90,000 acres of public land to ourselves. And while it wasn't easy, it sure was fun. It got even more fun the next day when we found a really good mule deer buck that made the amazing life-saving decision to not walk in front of my buddy when all eight of his girlfriends did. Now, if you're more of a pioneer than a settler in the deer woods and you own a front stuffer, then there are opportunities out there to cover ground and fill tags while having a hell of a lot of fun. Now, let me say this again or explain it more fully. We have the tendency to internalize hunting advice. And a lot of that these days involves developing an amazing spot and then volume hunting it. If you don't have that option, then it's all about grabbing your saddle and going mobile over and over and over with your ambush sites. Both of these are good. Do them if you can. But there is a third way to which the muzzleloader is ideally suited. And that's the still hunt. Or in some situations, you can more call it a spot and stock. Whatever, I don't care. Or you can do the tracking hunt like I did on that doe. 17 years ago now that was one of those things i'd heard about growing up you know those model 94 30 30 toting hunters wearing red plaid and simply walking down a big woods buck i honestly thought that was mostly bullshit when i read about it but then i did a mini version of that myself and realized that just because i think something is impossible or very unlikely doesn't make it so deer hunting is a wonderful route to take for many of those types of epiphanies and of course, you don't have to track one or still hunt one to kill them. You can also take a page right out of the Rifle Hunter's playbook and do a deer drive. But before that, let me explain how I feel about deer drives before I get into this one. As a young hunter who only bow hunted, I hated deer drives with a passion. I spent a lot of time post-gun season scouting and archery hunting and rabbit hunting and squirrel hunting and shed hunting and every year, I found dead bucks that had slug holes in their guts. When I say every year, I'm not lying either. Some years, I'd find several. I knew the groups that shotgun hunted the ground I hunted were big into deer drives. 
and I naturally assumed that they were just flinging lead without any serious follow-up. Now, I don't doubt that happened, but I also know that I was only speculating and looking to get pissed off at the folks who were hunting, quote-unquote, my deer. The reality with it was that just like bow hunters, muzzleloader hunters, and probably spear rattle hunters, there are good shots to take, and there are bad ones. Everyone takes both if they hunt long enough, and the bad ones are tough, even if you give it a real serious effort recovery-wise. So long story long, I've somewhat changed my tune on deer drives, even though they don't really do much for me personally, at least to be the poster on the end. I do love being a driver, and I really don't know why. I also love small, well-planned deer drives with a muzzleloader when the conditions are just right. The last time they were, for me, I was hunting a piece of public land in the Twin Cities with my dad. I knew there was a gnarly patch of river bottom cover that probably held a few deer, even though the gun season had just raged through. In fact, the whole reason we decided to go do a little one-man drive in there was because someone else had walked through our first setup, and I really kind of wanted to see what the sign looked like in that bottom. So my dad posted up for a close shot where a bluff butted up to the river in a classic pinch point type of spot while I circled way around. The wind direction was perfect for him and would allow me to step into the river bottom and get winded almost instantly. That's exactly what happened. And as anyone who has been on a successful drive can probably relate to, I went full froggy and jumped when his gun went off. It scared the shit out of me. Not only was the whole bottom covered in fresh tracks, a group of does had bounded out of the cover and stopped right in front of him for an absolute chip shot. I'm far, far from an expert on putting on deer drives, but that one shook out exactly the way it was supposed to, and it was pretty dang fun. And it was also, you know, maybe not really like a real deer drive. It was more like a subtle nudge, coupled with an eye toward the wind and the terrain, so it felt like there was some strategy involved. This is a great option if you want to get together with a buddy or two and have an active hunt, but it's not easy. It can put you in a position to take a not-so-great shot if the deer are running. My advice is to try hard to push them in a way where they aren't going to go full greyhound past the standards, and if they are, just to let them keep going. But I also advise you, if you're interested, to try it. Just like with the earlier strategy of sneaking around, a couple of well-planned deer nudges does a couple of things for you. It keeps you hunting, oftentimes during the hours of the day where sitting on stand would not be very productive. But better yet, it gets you into spots to look around. Think about this this way. Most of the hunting advice you're given from traditional media is built on the promise of do this, then kill a buck. It's point A to B stuff, and some of it is good, relevant, and worth consuming but it neglects the real secret sauce to becoming a skilled deer hunter, which is a wide variety of experience. Sure, you could sit for 300 hours a season on a stand, and that's going to give you a lot of experience, valuable experience. But so is a sneaky deer drive in the thick patch of cover in December. The deer that you move, or don't move, or don't move in the right way, those deer tell you a lot. Being where deer should be at that time of year, that tells you a lot. While it's probably a low, low odds type of hunting, if booners are the only deer on your hit list, the odds are high that you'll learn something about what deer generally like to do, and it's also fun. I know that so many of the voices in the whitetail space push a very serious narrative, and often seem to have as much fun on stand as you would in the dentist chair getting a root canal. In fact, I recently watched a series about hunting whitetail bucks where the host, 
who is a very well-known hunting celebrity and authority, could not have seemed more bored if he tried. Honestly, it was kind of painful. And while a lot of big bucks died on that series, it really didn't look like fun. It looked like he was putting in the motions necessary to kill huge deer where he knew he'd kill them, and it worked. But you're not like that. And if you feel that coming, consider heading it off by having some fun. That might mean a still hunt or a deer drive with a muzzleloader or a rifle, or if you've got a hell yeah attitude, your bow. The worst you can do is spend some time in the woods learning about deer. And the best you can do is fill a tag. Probably won't be on a huge buck, but it could be. Or it could be that you spend a Saturday with a trusted hunting buddy and end the night with a short blood trail on a delicious doe or a scrapper buck. If you don't fill a tag, that time spent going a bit unconventional with a front stuffer will give you a leg up on the remaining days of the bow season. Because after all, there's still time left, though we are going to get to the point of the season where a lot of folks say the hunting gets easier because of that previously mentioned need to load up on carbs and kcals as the rut disappears and the real winter sets in. Even if that advice is largely bullshit for you, because it mostly will be, there are other ways to stay on the action as the clock winds down. The next couple of weeks of this podcast will be dedicated to that time frame for all of you diehard folks out there looking to fill a tag when most of your competition is curled up on the couch under a blanket, watching a bunch of Southern Iowa bucks turn into ghosts under the drawl of a monotone voiceover. If you'd rather be in the woods than subject yourself to that, keep listening. I promise you we will figure out together how to kill the most difficult deer in the woods during the most difficult time of the season. That's it for this week, folks. I'm Tony Peterson, and this has been the Wired to Hunt Foundation's podcast. Please visit themeateater.com slash wired for more whitetail hunting information and check out our Wired to Hunt YouTube channel as well. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit markethouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY.